Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I have a conversation with Melissa Walker of Future Now Fund, a group started in 2017 dedicated to electing more Democrats to our state legislatures and supporting them with policy expertise once they're in office. Melissa talks about how to be most impactful with your activism and why state legislatures are where it's at if you want to transform American politics and improve people's lives. We also talk about the power of giving circles and how you can join in on the fun. So here is my conversation with Melissa Walker. Hi, Melissa. It's such a pleasure and an honor to have you here for my inaugural New Faces of Democracy podcast. So thank you so much and welcome. Thank you, Nancy. It's really nice to be here. So I want to start talking about your life before Trump was elected in 2016 and your life today. Can you just paint a quick picture of what you were doing in those more innocent times before November of 2016? Sure. Yeah. So I write children's books. That has been my career for a long time, writing young adult and middle grade novels. And so my life was spent in the corners of coffee shops very quietly, thinking about coming-of-age summers and sibling fights and mining my teenage diaries for story ideas. And it was lovely. I had definitely had some political moments in my life. I felt very affected by the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson. I remember following that very closely and feeling something stirring. So I think there had been moments along the way where I found myself getting more political, but I was not ready for the incident of November 2016. And it certainly hit me very hard. Let's just follow up with, tell me what you're doing today. And we'll talk about your path from there to here. Sure. So today, I am the director of Giving Circles at Future Now Fund, and I work to change the balance of power in state legislatures across the country. That's great. What is there one specific moment? Obviously, there was the one moment of the election, which was shocking for so many of us. But in terms of your transformation, where you said, I'm going to put writing to the side for a while and focus on something else. Was there one moment, a series of moments, what stands out to you as a pivotal point in that path? I think there were a couple of moments along the way. Some of them include in December of 2016, I attended a holiday party. It was a publishing holiday party. And I remember that I had been tweeting and calling my representatives and sending postcards, doing whatever I could, really whatever social media told me to do, and feeling less than impactful and feeling pretty hopeless and helpless. And at that party, New York State Senator Daniel Squadron was speaking. And he said a bunch of things about what we could do in this moment in history. And the thing that he said that really caught my attention was, if you and your friends can get $100,000 together, you can flip a state chamber from red to blue. And that sentence echoed in my brain. And I 
went up to him afterwards with friends and we ended up meeting him for coffee later that week to talk it through. And that was the moment when I really started learning about the power of state legislatures and also how much you could impact them with way less money than I ever thought was possible to play with in politics. And so I started doing the work of gathering those resources and trying to change the balance of power in state capitals. Well, tell me about Future Now. When was it started and what does it do? Well, that holiday party was in late 2016 and Future Now Fund started in the summer of 2017 when Daniel Squadron resigned from the New York State Senate to start the organization. And Future Now Fund aims to change the balance of power in state legislatures and also has a policy arm called Future Now Action, which aims to help lawmakers pass bills that improve lives. So there's a two-parter there. And I got involved really early on before Future Now Fund even started with gathering resources with friends and family and colleagues and neighbors because I started to understand the power of state legislatures and I started to understand how vast an impact they had on people's lives. When we started gathering people in living rooms, we would have six people over for sushi or 10 people over for pizza. And I had to learn how to talk about state legislatures in those moments. And what I learned really blew my mind. I learned that state legislatures impact absolutely everything that I care about from healthcare to education funding to civil rights to gun safety, all those kitchen table issues, environmental policies. And they also happen to decide voting laws and draw the district lines for who goes to Congress. So I saw that there was this two-level impact where they were working on everyday life issues, but also deciding who was going to Washington, D.C. for us. And that kind of power center, I just didn't know it existed. I didn't have eyes on Albany. I didn't know who my state representatives were in the fall of 2016. I will fully admit that, even though I considered myself a very informed person. And most people that I talk to today still aren't very clear on who goes to their state capitals for them. So learning that was a really important part of the journey. And when Future Now Fund started, my group had gathered a bunch of pledges and we're ready to go. And so we worked with Future Now Fund in Virginia in 2017. Virginia has off-year elections. And we worked with Future Now Fund there on 10 campaigns. Nine of those candidates won their seats in the Virginia House of Delegates. The balance of power got so close in the Virginia House of Delegates, just one seat away from being a Democratic majority, that Virginia had to expand Medicaid. And 400,000 people got health care who didn't have it previously. And my group felt incredibly attached to that policy outcome. We really felt impactful. And that was another point in my journey, touch point. And that was the moment when I went back to Daniel Squadron and said, I want to meet all the other people who did this and who were inspired by your words. And he was like, "Mm, I mean, not that many people did it. So, And I thought, oh my gosh, everyone has to do this. It's the most inspiring, impactful thing I've ever done. And that was the moment when I put aside my writing to really do this in a more robust way. And I started going into the Future Now Fund offices one day a week, and then two days a week, and then three days a week. (laughs) And now I'm the director of the Giving Circles program, which is something that I started with Future Now Fund in early 2018. 
So giving circles, it sounds like that's how you started. That's when you talked about gathering your friends and neighbors and family. That was a giving circle. Tell me a little bit more about giving circles. Are they something that really is a hallmark of future now versus other organizations doing similar work? So giving circles as a general concept have been around for ages. In fact, I looked into it and found that some of the earliest ones were women living in ancient societies. And when women didn't have access to large amounts of money, they often had access to very small amounts of money and pooled collectively, those small amounts of money could actually make big change. So as a concept and as a practice, it's been around for a very long time. The idea of political giving circles was what really fired me up because many, many giving circles are charitable and they give to C3s and community work. And that's all very laudable. I loved the concept of the giving circle coming in to make political change and becoming significant political donors with a group of friends and family. And so that's what Future Now Fund has kind of created for people. It's a way to be a hugely impactful player in the political scene. And I've been thinking about this a lot in this moment, because in this moment of dealing with the coronavirus, I think so many of us are tending to our neighbors and tending to our families and tending to our communities and our hospital workers and all the immediate needs that we see all around us. And we absolutely should, and that is wholly appropriate. But if we aren't on a parallel track investing in structural change by changing the balance of power and who's getting elected, then what we're doing is putting a Band-Aid on a giant wound. And what we really need to do is push for the structural change. And the way to do that is with political investment. And so the giving circles take that idea, you're forming a community, you're doing this together, but they put it into this kind of hard money terms, which is we're putting our investment behind people we want to elect and people who are going to improve lives. And that creates structural change. So that's what the program is intended to do. And part of the magic of the program is that it is political fundraising, but at its heart, it's community organizing. It's bringing people together, gathering in a group, learning a whole lot about this system that honestly, in many cases, operates in darkness. Many state capitals do not have a spotlight on them. And when you start realizing that things like the bathroom bill that came out of my home state of North Carolina in Raleigh and then passed to other states, that's a state legislature. When you start thinking about the stand your ground gun law that passed in Tallahassee that let Trayvon Martin's murderer go free and then passed in 20 some odd other states, that's a state legislature. And when you think about something like Flint, Michigan, and the water crisis there, you start to realize that's not a Washington DC problem. That's a Lansing problem. And when you create change in those legislatures, when you elect majorities that are trying to improve lives, then you change what happens in our country, all over the country. State legislatures are meant to be laboratories for democracy. They're meant to be marriage equality going from state to state to state to federal. They're meant to be healthcare going from Hawaii to Massachusetts to becoming the ACA. They can be that. But right now, with many, many Republican majorities, they end up being laboratories for voter suppression bills and bans on reproductive rights. And we're seeing that even in this moment where Texas, Ohio, Alabama, I think Iowa, and one other state have actually banned abortion in this moment, deeming it a non-essential procedure during the crisis. 
And that is a special interest that is rushing in with a majority that's ready to do that. And what happened in Wisconsin is also a special interest rushing in. Making people vote in person during a pandemic is absolutely a voter suppression tactic. And it is also a precedent setter for November. Having the Supreme Court rule that a state legislature can do that sets the tone for what's possible in November in terms of suppressing the vote. So to see, I think in this moment, in this COVID-19 moment, we're seeing states for what they really are, which are these huge power centers. And I've actually been heartened by the fact that the national media really is tuning into the fact that states are leading on this or not, and that states are either protecting people or putting people at risk. And that is about who's in power in those states. Yeah, it is a very interesting moment. And I actually was going to ask you about COVID-19, and I'm glad you brought it up now. Sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but I get excited. No, no, not at all, because I was going to ask you about if that was creating any opportunities for you. And it seems it has in a weird way in terms of public consciousness. Is it creating any issues for you? Are you finding it in terms of future now, in terms of raising money? Yeah, it's been really interesting, honestly. The first week of the lockdowns, I personally felt like I needed to take a breath and stabilize my family and figure out what was going on. And I ended up really leaning into that and sending an email to all of my giving circles saying exactly that. Like, let's pause. I get it. Let's all take a breath. And we did. And I think in the weeks that have come after that, as I've seen all the things that I talked about starting to happen, I've seen special interests rushing in. And I've also seen the opportunities that are here for good things to happen. I've seen states with majorities that want to improve lives doing things like passing paid sick leave, changing laws that can really help people in this moment. They also have that power. So I've been really heartened. We do a policy call once a week now that is usually over 100 state lawmakers plus a couple of healthcare experts talking about COVID-19 in this moment. And those calls have been incredibly heartening for me because to listen to what each state is doing and to have them sharing ideas with each other about what is possible has been a great moment to witness. And I think it gives you a view of what is possible when we change the majorities across the country. So there's been some good things in this moment. The other thing that's happened is that from that pause moment, I started to feel sad. And then I started to feel angry. And I think I am now still in my angry moment. And my angry moment has to do with the fact that we've spent decades dismantling what government can do in this country. And now we have these giant holes in our safety nets and the things that could be helping people right now that have been really just torn apart. And that is making me incredibly angry. I absolutely believe that state legislatures are the place where we can fix those things and fix them the quickest. And so I am more committed than ever to this mission. And I have been talking to the giving circles about that and they are feeling energized in the same way. So we've been through a lot of emotional cycles in the last month, but I think we're really getting back on track because we see with renewed focus how much this can help. So let's circle back to the giving circle, the way it works. What kind of guidance does Future Now give them and how do they know where to put their money? 
So with Giving Circles, they set up a page on Future Now Fund in a practical sense. So they get their own page. Each Giving Circle has a name. Some of them have logos or photos of the people in the circle. It's up to them how to personalize the page. And they raise money into that page. Now, we do all of the research and we analyze all 99 state chambers. Nebraska is unicameral. That's a nice piece of trivia for a dinner party. But we analyze all 99 state chambers and then look at the states where we think we could shift the balance of power that election cycle. And so we have 12 target states in 2020. And shifting the balance of power in those states usually means flipping a chamber, but sometimes can mean breaking a supermajority for a Democratic governor or it can mean defending a new vulnerable majority. That's the case this year in Maine and New Hampshire, two states we worked in in 2018 to help flip the chamber. And this year, we need to be back to defend that new majority and make sure that they can continue doing the good things that they've been doing. So that's what it means to change the balance of power. That's how we do our analysis. In those states, we then zero in on the districts, and we decide which districts we think have the fundamentals that could flip this year. So we end up endorsing candidates. That's a post-primary process. So we haven't done it in every state yet because there's a lot of primaries that happen later, but we have done it so far in North Carolina and Texas. We both had primaries in March. And those candidates become kind of the team for that state. And when a giving circle chooses the state it would like to impact, they usually do that through what's called a state selection process. And often that's an event. Right now it's a Zoom event where anyone who has joined the Giving Circle has a vote in which state they get to impact. Sometimes the leadership team chooses the state. It all depends. And sometimes the Giving Circle is in the state that it's choosing. So Texas, North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, we have Giving Circles in all those states and they are choosing their own state, which makes sense. So that's how that works. And then after they choose a state, they get a full slate of the candidate bios and district fundamentals to dig into. And then once we have a spending plan for each state, we also share that because part of the giving circle process is to make political giving a really transparent experience. And so we want people to know exactly where the money's going and how it's being spent. And we also want people to know what do campaigns spend money on? What does it mean to run a full campaign? Why this much on field and this much on digital and this much on texting? How does this work? Why is this state different from this state? It's a real education piece, which I think is really interesting for people who want to dig in at that level. And not everybody does, but some giving circles get really into the wonky information. And what if somebody wants to be part of a giving circle, but doesn't have a ton of time? How involved do you have to be? So usually the leadership team are the ones who are most involved. And I would say it really varies. I mean, we give people a lot of tools and we offer a lot of trainings. It's all kind of optional. So we do fundraising training. We do storytelling training. We do some organizing training and some comms training. Those are all just hour-long Zoom calls and conversations with us. And what that does really is it makes the program a real training in community organizing. And that's what this is at its core. And I really believe that the world would be better if there were more community organizers. So anyone who starts a Future Now Fund Giving Circle, I want them to be able to have the experience of being trained as a community organizer so that for the rest of their lives, they'll know how to bring attention and resources to anything that they care about. 
gaining that skill set for me has been one of the most empowering things I've ever done. And I really want more people to have that opportunity. So core to the Giving Circles program is that when you join us to form a Giving Circle, we also want to give something to you. And it is those skills, that knowledge, and also an understanding of how powerful we can be when we work together. I think people often surprise themselves with the goals that they set and meet because we all walk with so much power when we come together. And knowing that helps you walk through the world in a more confident way. That's my hope for all Giving Circle leaders. I will say that if people don't want to spend much time, that's also fine. I have one Giving Circle who really doesn't like to do much of the engagement. They throw two big parties a year to reach their goal, and then they're done. And that is perfectly okay. That is absolutely a way to go. I have other Giving Circles who meet weekly and postcard together. Now they do that over Zoom, but they're still doing it. They're still doing it over Zoom, and it's kind of amazing. Everyone makes it their own. Great. Thank you. So super majorities you mentioned. Just for people who don't understand, what exactly does it mean to be a super majority? Why is it helpful to shift the balance of power, even if the Republicans are still in power in that state? Why is that something we want to do? Great question. So super majorities, the rules on what they can do vary from state to state. But I will give you an example, which is North Carolina. So, and not just because it's my home state. North Carolina is a really good example of what it means to break a supermajority. North Carolina elected a Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, in 2016. There was a Republican majority in both the state house and the state senate. So that meant that they immediately called session and took away Governor Cooper's veto power. Anytime he wanted to veto a bill that they were putting through, they just could overturn the veto just with their supermajority. So he essentially didn't have much power at all, even though he was the elected governor of the state. And in 2018, we were in North Carolina to um, try to break the supermajority in the North Carolina House. And we ended up flipping 12 seats from red to blue. And that did break the supermajority and then some. The Republicans still have a majority in North Carolina, but breaking the supermajority meant that Governor Cooper got his veto power back. One really specific example of when that was important, and it's been important several times this year, was as we saw states limiting reproductive rights last spring and early summer, we saw those bills passing across the country. We saw North Carolina bring a reproductive rights limiting bill, and Governor Cooper vetoed it. Well, the Republicans decided that they wanted to overturn that veto. And even though they don't have the numbers to do that just on their own anymore, they decided to hold the vote on a day when they knew that some Democrats wouldn't be present. And they chose a very specific day. A woman named Sydney Batch, who was elected to the North Carolina House, had battled breast cancer on the campaign trail. And she had to have a mastectomy in the spring of 2019. And they decided to hold the vote to overturn that veto while she was going through treatment after her mastectomy. And they knew that she would be in the hospital. So she found out about that and she came to Raleigh in a wheelchair, in pain, and was there to make sure that they couldn't do that. Now they postponed the vote a few more times and made her show up in Raleigh a few more times, but eventually they gave up. And that's what breaking the supermajority in North Carolina meant. There is not a limit on reproductive rights in North Carolina, but it is because we broke that supermajority. And that's incredibly 
powerful. So it can really mean something. And this year, we have a Democratic governor in Kansas, they have a supermajority, and we're going to aim to break it. That legislative majority was actually really trying to undo the governor's orders to lock down. They were trying to make it so that Easter could be a day when people could gather in large groups. And a court had to decide that the legislature could not do that. They could not overrule the governor's orders. Thank goodness. But supermajorities can really take a governor's power away. What states are you active in trying to flip or change the balance of power in 2020? Let me get my list, although maybe I can do it from memory. So now I'm going to pull up the list. We are in Alaska, Arizona, Florida, Iowa, Kansas, Maine, Michigan, Montana, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Texas. I know you've explained to me so well why states matter. What would you say to someone from, say, New York or California, some deeply blue state, who's giving money already to lots of different races, why they should care about who is elected in the middle of Kansas that has no impact on their lives? They don't live in Kansas. They don't know anyone who lives in Kansas. Why should they direct their money there? Well, there's a couple of things. My first kind of holistic view, and this is really like how my heart feels, this is our country. You know, this is our country. There was a moment in time where Oklahoma had defunded education so badly that the kids had four days of school. Do I care about that? Yes, I do. And I think a lot of us do. I think there's a real opportunity here to look at the 50 states as our country and not to think of our state as the only thing we should care about. So that's one. The other is a point I made earlier, which is that state capitals can be laboratories for democracy. They can absolutely have state laws that pass and pass and pass to different places and may hit your state or the federal level eventually. And you want those to be healthcare and marriage equality. You don't want them to be standard ground gun laws and things that are going to impact your state in a negative way, voter suppression bills. So that's another reason. You know, an example of that really is we should all be thanking the people who go to Sacramento because they set emission standards for our entire country. The automakers are not going to lose the California market. If Sacramento has the strictest emission standards, then that's what they build to. And that's an example of state legislators absolutely doing something that impacts us all, luckily, in a good way. Right. And plus, I've also heard that states are pipelines for future candidates for federal office. And so get quality people in there, get them learning the ropes of legislating, and hopefully they move on up. That's absolutely true. You may have heard of Barack Obama, who's <laughs> once a state legislator, Stacey Abrams. Very true. So 2020, this is the first time Future Now is coming up against a presidential election happening at the same time. Do you feel like it's hard to maintain people's focus on states right now? I think when people are ready to get politically engaged, this is a really good sweet spot for them because presidential aside, I mean, the presidential race is the kind of money that I can't even imagine. And even when I think about federal races, I think about the fact that it is often cheaper to change the balance of power in a state chamber than it is to win a single competitive congressional race. So understanding that the return on investment of political giving at the state level is so incredibly great is something that I think a lot of people who get involved with us are keenly aware of. 
and are ready to message to other people. I think that people feel like they can't be impactful with political donations. I mean, obviously, very wealthy people feel like they can be and they are. But state legislatures are really a power center that all of us can impact, especially with something like the format of a giving circle where we're bringing resources together. And so when we've talked about the presidential, I mean, now, at least on the Democratic side, it's all decided, well, and on the Republican side, too. But when the primary was going on, I would often say to people, my personal thing was, I gave $5 to every Democratic candidate who I liked, because I wanted to be on their list. I wanted them to have me there and I had showed my support. But I knew that giving more than that wasn't going to be impactful in any kind of way. So that was it. And then I follow them and I'm going to support them with a vote and maybe talk about them at dinner parties. But my giving comes at the state level because I understand how impactful those dollars are. Yep. I just want to touch quickly on your advocacy work. I know that you guys have been compared to the Progressive ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council, which has been crafting model legislation for conservative legislators for decades. They're kind of controversial because many people feel like they've been co-opted by special interests and it's kind of snaky and secretive. What do you think of that comparison? We definitely have a special interest, which is improving lives. And our policy library is up online and anyone can see it. So americasgoals.org has a set of seven values-based goals. And then within those goals are targets that we'd like states to reach by 2030. And under those targets are model bills that help move things along towards those targets. And so everything is out in the open and completely transparent. And anyone who wants to pick up those bills and run with them, Republicans, Democrats, we're supportive of it because those are bills that will improve lives. ALEC, while I believe in the past few years, they've become a little more transparent, is definitely a place where corporate bills get put through and then handed to legislators in states and has resulted in some of the most disastrous policies that our country has seen. So I take that comparison. They're incredibly powerful. And we hope we can do as much with our bills to improve lives. And have you had the opportunity to have any of your bills introduced yet with the legislators that you have had helped get elected? Yes, absolutely. And with the caveat that I'm not on the policy team, so I don't have numbers at my fingertips, we have done a few big initiatives. We did a clean water push this fall where we worked with a bunch of lawmakers in our network to introduce a bill on clean water in many, many states, red, blue, and purple states. And it started with a group in West Virginia who wanted that bill. So we built it out for that team in West Virginia, and then it spread to a bunch of other states. We also introduced something with future majority called the Veterans Bill of Rights. And that was a jobs bill, an education bill, and a healthcare bill all packaged into this Veterans Bill of Rights. And that was introduced, I believe, in 13 states when we rolled it out last year in May. And I believe we've added more states since then. So it's been really exciting to watch the policy stuff move forward. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so women. I read somewhere that, I don't know, it's a really high percentage of your members or your giving circle members are women. What do you think that's about? Obviously, there's the Women's March. Women are very engaged right now politically. But how do you see Future Now's role with women, with empowering women? Well, I think that in a lot of ways, the giving circles are really a community building exercise. And I think that women are community builders. I think there is, you know, there's something about 
groups of women coming together to organize for their children's schools or to organize. It's often book clubs are run by women. I think women gather together and find strength in community. And the Giving Circle model is all about that. So I think that's why women have been leading our giving circles for the most part, although there are a few leading men involved in our giving circles as well. And we actually received an email a few months ago, which made me laugh, which was from a man and said, hey, I'd like to hear more about these giving clubs. And I was like, oh, interesting. Maybe if we just called it a giving club, more men would get involved. But I do think there's something about gathering and doing something as a community that is in women's nature. I think that's it. That makes sense. I feel that way with my friends. So, okay, somebody wants to get involved in Future Now. What's the first step they should do? If they wanted to start a giving circle, we hold biweekly calls to talk about what giving circles do and how they can get started. So they could certainly sign up for one of those calls. And we also have a program called Give Smart, which is run by our research director, Aaron Kleinman. And that program activates around moments when we see either a race or a slate of races where we think a ton of small dollar donations can really move the needle. And so in those moments, Aaron will send out a notification to the Give Smart list and we'll put it on social media. And that becomes kind of a call to action where, hey, right now, this is the most impactful place where you can give. And we think you could change things if you would give right now. He takes that very seriously and only activates the team when there's a real chance, which is a fun thing. So if people go to futurenow.org and sign up for the Give Smart newsletter, they'll start to get our communications and invitations to join things like the Giving Circle calls. They'll get those Give Smart notifications and they'll just be able to hear about everything that we're working on. Great. Okay, now I'm wrapping up, but I want to circle back to you, your story, your journey. First, you were writing alone in coffee shops, living a very quiet, it sounds like quiet, introspective, reflective existence. And now it seems like you're interacting with people all the time. You're working in this bustling virtual office. Are there any skills from your writing days that you feel like have come into play and been really useful here? Well, I think that a real core part of the Giving Circles program is storytelling. And a lot of the work that Giving Circle leaders do is telling the story, not really of even why states matter. We give Giving Circle leaders a lot of materials on why states matter. They don't necessarily have to memorize like, oh, from 2010 to 2016, we lost nearly a thousand state legislative seats. They don't have to have those facts at their fingertips because we give them a sheet that says, here's why states matter. You can hand this out when you talk to people. But what we need you to do is tell your story. Tell the story of why you got involved in this work and why it means something to you. They really come up with incredible things in those moments. It's very empowering to know that you don't have to memorize a bunch of facts and figures. You don't have to be a political expert to do this work. You just have to know why you care about it. And you have to be able to tell the story of you. Because the story of you is the story of us. And the story of us is the story of now. And that's a Marshall Gans thing in community organizing. But it's a wonderful practice. And it's a really great skill for people to have. So I think that my storytelling experience kind of helped me get a head start on being able to do that. And I hope that all Giving Circle leaders feel like they're getting a similar skill set. Well, I know you have me super pumped up to join a Giving Circle. It's worked on me. And I would love to talk to you about how this journey has affected you personally and what you found most rewarding in the process. Absolutely. I would say that I am naturally 
a 50-50 introvert-extrovert. And my current role is pretty much 90% extrovert. And there's like an introvert inside me quietly crying in a corner. So I really do miss those quiet coffee shop moments. But what it's done for me, it's honestly been my therapy. In this moment, when I look at the federal news, and it brings so much pain And I realized that that pain is hitting people so hard. And if I didn't feel like I could do anything about that, I think I would go out of my mind. And so to have this work, to understand its impact, to know that I can do it, and to know that I can give other people the opportunity to do it too, has been incredibly empowering for me. It really has given me a very profound sense of purpose. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. This has been really informative, really inspiring. I'm very humbled by all you do and how you've devoted yourself to it. So I really appreciate you talking to me today. Absolutely. Thank you, Nancy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.